man, we're, uh, we're excited to be here again. My name is Josiah. If you're just joining us, I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and we're going through our series called Witnesses, um, and it is a study in the book of Acts. Our theme verse for this is Acts 1-8, and it says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Being a witness for Jesus begins with receiving power to do so. That's what this passage is essentially saying to us. You will receive power of the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Holy Spirit has empowered the church to be an effective witness for Jesus. You must be filled with the Spirit. Another way to say this is you cannot be an effective witness for Jesus in your own strength. And this is because that Christ's testimony, in order to receive Christ's testimony, to believe who Christ says he is and who he says you and I are, takes a tremendous amount of conviction on one's heart. And last time I checked, you and I don't have the power to be able to convict anyone's heart. But the Spirit of God does. The Spirit of God's, one of his primary roles is, is just this. Jesus told the disciples in John chapter 16, he said this in verse 8, And when, the Holy, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. A few verses later, he says, when the Holy Spirit, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit leads us from falsehood to truth. He leads us to Jesus. This is one of his primary roles. And so being an effective witness means that we need the Holy Spirit to lead us to Christ. And we need the Holy Spirit to help us lead others to Christ. We can't lead others to Christ in our own strength. I know many of you know that and feel it often. And that, man, this is a, this is a hard task, Christ, that you've given. I feel incapable. I feel just um, downright unusable. But maybe we remember this morning, church, that Christ has chosen to use even the weakest things so that he might be glorified, so that he might be seen as strong, so that he might be seen as capable even in our incapability. This is the role of the Spirit, to lead people not to us but to Christ, from falsehood to Jesus. And this is, Paul understood this, in this passage, we're reading this and it's like, man, how did Paul have the, the gumption and just the, um, the, um, the resolve to go and to do what Christ has called him to do? The Spirit of God led him. And I, I pray that we would also be filled with the Spirit of God today. That we would see that like Paul, we can suffer and suffer well and we can lead others to Christ as an effective witness. Let's pray together. Jesus, by your spirit, we are alive today. 
We are in you, Christ. I pray that, Spirit of God, you would come and you would settle upon our hearts and our minds to, to hear this word, but not only hear it, Lord, but to, to receive it. That it would not fall upon deaf ears today, but you would cause your word to come alive to us. That I would merely be a vessel in your hands to be used however you see fitting, God, today. And that you would speak to my heart, to every heart here, and that we would be listening, Lord. And whatever you ask of us, Lord, we would obey you. For you are Lord. You are God. And we submit our lives to you. In Christ's name, amen. The title of today's sermon is The Gospel Emboldens Us to Love. And there's three areas I want to look at today. This, uh, um, my sermon is uh, the main kind of template of it. It was taken from uh, Tim Keller's study in the book of Acts called Evangelism. It's a great resource if you want to uh, look it up um, called Evangelism by Tim Keller. It's mainly for uh, like small group study, but it's, it's a really thorough uh, study of the book of Acts. And from there, I want to look at three different areas from the passage we read. And we read so much this morning just to kind of give context, but we're going to spend most of our time in chapter 22. But three areas, Paul's suffering, Paul's response, and Paul's failure. Firstly, Paul's suffering. Let's look at how Paul followed Christ in this suffering here. Uh, there are a number of parallels to draw out of here. Um, how Paul suffered parallels very closely with how Christ suffered in his time on earth. But we're going to look at just three real quick um, because they're interesting and they're important. Um, A, Paul came to Jerusalem, though he knew that he would suffer there. Right? So look at uh, verse 13 of chapter 21. Verse 13. This is after, okay, so the elders at Ephesus had left already. Paul and Luke and others had set sail, and they were going from city after city. They finally arrived at the land of Tyre, um, and they were met at a house um, by a guy named Philip. And then this prophet came, Agabus, and he prophesied that if, Christ, or if Paul were to go to Jerusalem, then he would be met by these trials. He would be bound in chains. And they urged him, in verse 12, they urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Verse 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Similarly, Jesus, uh, Luke, actually, funny enough, um, he records uh, Christ in Luke 9, um, where it says that, and when the time drew near for him to be taken up, being Christ, when Christ, when the time drew near for Christ to be taken up, he set his face towards Jerusalem, that he would go there. So Jesus knew full well, even though he knew full well what was before him in Jerusalem, that it would be suffering, that the cross was waiting for him, that death was on the other end of that. He set his face there, and he resolved to go. Paul, in like manner, says, I, I know what's ahead of me in Jerusalem, but I'm going. I'm ready. Another thing is that Paul was accused of teaching against the law in the temple. In verse 28, 
We see that the whole crowd crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus and the Ephesian with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So Paul was being falsely accused of um, breaking the law and blaspheming um, this temple that was very sacred to the Jewish religion. Similarly, again, uh, Christ was also accused of breaking the law, for going against the law. For, but Christ said, I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill the law. He was accused of blaspheming and that because he said he would tear down the temple and destroy the temple and then rebuild it, right? But what was he doing? He was saying that these things are just shadows to a greater reality. I'm not abolishing, I'm come to fulfill these things. And that this temple that you speak of is just a shadow of the temple that I'm going to dwell in forever. My church. Another thing was that most obviously Paul was beaten to within an inch of his life by those who accosted him, by those who yelled and threatened him. We know that in crucifixion before Somebody was crucified on the cross. They were taken out and they were whipped. They were beaten badly. Not just beaten, but the word is scourged. That they were, the flesh was literally ripped from their backs. So that the muscles and the meat and the bone were exposed. Jesus was beaten to a point that many people even died from before they even got to the cross. But there's something we should note about these parallels. And it's important, and it's this, that suffering for Jesus is not an atypical Christian behavior. Suffering for Jesus is not an atypical Christian behavior. Timothy Keller, I don't know why I call him Timothy Keller. Nobody calls him Timothy Keller, right? Tim Keller says, the parallels of Paul with Christ are not to show us how exceptional Paul is as a Christian, but how unexceptional he is. How unexceptional he is. See, Paul was not this some elite Christian, right? That we can all just kind of look up to and admire and be like, man, I hope I can be like him one day. In some regards, yes. But he was not set apart so differently that his calling to suffer is separate from ours. Yeah, we we probably will not have the same road of suffering that Paul took. 99% of the people in here, we're not going to suffer the way that he suffered or like countless people around the world even today suffer because of their faith in Christ. But is the concept of suffering... Does it evade your understanding as a Christian? Does it completely evade you in your life and how you've set up your life as a Christian? Here's just a handful of quick verses um, that speak to this for all Christians. And Jesus in Matthew 10, 22 says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Matthew 16, speaking to to the crowd again, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The cross was not a symbol of comfort. The cross was a symbol of 
suffering and death. For whoever would save his life would, will lose it. But whoever would lose his life for, the, for my sake will find it. Paul in 2 Corinthians, he tells the church, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. And probably most explicitly, 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul to Timothy says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. What we learn from Paul's life is not that there is just some higher level of Christianity that we ought to achieve, but that the road following Christ is difficult. I don't have to really explain that and necessarily persuade you that the road following Christ is difficult. But the reason I bring it up and the reason it's important is because we ought to evaluate our lives, church. My life, your life. Again, the suffering, the concept of it evade our understanding. Furthermore, Paul's example is not just to suffer, but how to suffer well. To suffer well. Second thing is Paul's response. Let's look at how Paul responds to the crowd. Now, after he has been beaten to within an inch of his life. And the first thing is this. A, this is not a, a sermon that Paul delivers here. Much like what I'm giving now. But the, we don't really have an explanation of why Paul would re- respond to the crowd the way he does respond to them. But we have one explanation. It's the gospel. But it doesn't really make sense how he responded to them the way he did. Because there's something very natural within each and every one of us. And I, I use that word natural very, really purposefully this morning. There's something natural within us to respond to someone who has either harmed us emotionally or physically or even threatened us emotionally or physically. And it's not to reach out in care and in love but to retaliate, to avenge ourselves, or at the very least to withdraw ourselves. That's not how Paul responds to the crowd, is it? How does he respond to them? In verse 39, it says that he begged the tribune to speak to the crowd. He did not withdraw himself and said, I'm done with you guys. No, he said, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Instinctively, when, when someone wrongs us, our first emotion towards them is, is certainly not care. But in Paul's conversion, with his new heart, with the spirit indwelling in him, and sanctifying his life, and now through the spirit's eyes, he looks out on the crowd, not, who just beat him, not in hate, but in love. And this is what the gospel does, Church. This is what the gospel does to someone. It turns a person from his or herself, from his or herself and outward. From this life to eternal things. And since we no longer have anything that's worth gaining from this world alone, alone, we're able to spend ourselves for the gospel. 
The gospel emboldens us. It emboldens you to suffer long and to love well. This is what the gospel does. Your turn from self-preservation to self-sacrifice. From apprehensiveness to lose out on something in life. To being willing to just be poured out as a drink offering for the sake of Christ and that others might know him. Paul was gripped by the gospel. It emboldened him to be able to suffer well, to love well. And here's how he did it. Here's how he addressed them. First thing he did is he addressed them in in Aramaic. The Hebrew language, uh, the the language for the Jews in Palestine at that time under Roman rule was Aramaic. And what he was doing in this was he saying, he was given... he was showing respect. It was a sign of deference to the people. To say that, I'm speaking to you. He's speaking to a people that felt overrun and violated by outsiders. He was speaking to a people that were hurt. And he said, I'm speaking to you. And so this means that the Romans... Foreigners there wouldn't understand him. And he was directly speaking to the people that beat him. You feel the weight of that? That he chose not to address anyone else around, but address the people that just beat him to an inch of his life. And how did the people respond? I said a great hush came over the crowd. And then when they understood that, well, he's speaking to in our language. They became even more quiet. They were kind of caught off guard probably for a second. And then what does he say? In verse, in verse 1 he says, he addresses them as brothers and fathers. Brothers and fathers. Paul made himself one of those people. He said, I'm not too different from you. You're my brother. You're my father. Maybe even some of you are those that I learned under the Jewish faith. A father in the faith to me. I'm one of you. Before he worked to draw distinctions between him and his crowd and the audience, he worked really hard to lay a level ground. The next thing he does is, this this one is probably most just mind-blowing to me. In verse 3 of chapter 22, says, I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. What's he saying there? I believe Paul is commending their motives. I believe Paul is commending them and their motives. The people that grabbed him, pulled him into the street, shut the gate so that he couldn't leave, started beating him because they wanted to kill him, he commended them and said, I was just as zealous as you are, brothers and fathers. I know. I myself went and ravaged the church, the Bible says. I pulled Christians out of their homes into the streets in order to beat them and imprison them and even kill them. I I did this even more than you have. What is Paul saying? He said that, I understand that 
that you have a zeal for God, but your zeal is misdirected. You know, much of the world, the, the, what the world does is, is, is not bad. Some of it is really bad, right? But much of it is not. But its zeal and its purpose is misdirected. And so the question that comes to my mind when I, when I read this is, is this question. Um, do you know who your enemy is? Do you know who your enemy is? It's not culture. It's not politicians. It's, it's not those who are different than you are. It's not even those who harm you. These are not our enemies. Our enemy is sin. And guess what? Christ has defeated that enemy. That enemy is done. There is victory in Christ. We don't have to fight these kind of tiny little wars any longer. But we can pursue love. We can pursue grace. We don't have to retaliate with hostility. Hostility cannot be combated with argument and logic, right? You know, if Paul, Paul didn't come out there just swinging and, and like laying on the hammer with all of his knowledge of, let me tell you guys how you're wrong about this. He didn't use his, his place there now in the custody of the tribune as kind of a pedestal in order to lay the hammer down. Because he knew that they weren't listening to him. They didn't care what he had to say. They didn't care about his knowledge. Hostility cannot be combated with argument and logic. And by and large, our, our culture, it does not know how to respond to hostility. I believe it's the church's job. I believe it's the church's responsibility to lead the way in pursuing rational Intelligent yet vulnerable and kind conversations around some really difficult subjects. Around some really hostile type subjects. You know, namely race and LGBTQ community, gender identity, immigration. Do we remove ourselves so much from that stuff because it's so uncomfortable and we're afraid of hostility that we don't actually allow ourselves to enter into anyone's story and to be able to have an opportunity to share the gospel? I fear that it it does happen too often and the reason I can just say that is because I know it happens in my life. I know the fear that that I feel Because I'm afraid of hostility. But we don't combat hostility, which is logic and wise words and arguments. We combat it with the gospel. And the Sunday gathering should not be the only place, church, where your friends and your family hear the gospel. The Sunday gathering should not be the only place where your friends and family hear the gospel. Do they hear it from you? Do they see it from you? Do they understand it? Do they perceive the love and grace and gentleness that goes along with the gospel? 
resistance. Paul sought to seize every opportunity he had for the gospel. He was not going to let this one get by him. Every opportunity he had. Every opportunity God gives me, I'm going to seize it for the gospel. The natural man retaliates in kind with whatever he has been dealt. And his motive is to avenge himself. He says, eye for an eye. But the spirit-filled man, the spirit-filled man, the spirit of Christ, the Christ who said that law, eye for an eye, was never meant to be used for interpersonal relationships. I'm going to show you a greater way. He is led by the spirit to respond in kindness, love, and gentleness, and self-control. Self-control over our emotions, even. There's always a war on your life. We got, we got to understand this. there's always a war on our life. And the, the Bible calls our natural selves, our flesh. And Galatians tells us, Paul in Galatians 4 says that our flesh and the spirit of God are diametrically opposed to one another. Your flesh is your old man. It's the way you were before Christ gave you a new heart and a spirit. And here in the present, you and I, we still have the presence of sin, but we are no longer under the bondage of sin. We are freed from being enslaved to sin, although we still experience and feel sin and even sin ourselves. We're not enslaved to that sin. Christ defeated that sin. He triumphed over it on the cross and rising again from the grave. And then he gave his spirit as a deposit to the church to say that one day you will be from freed from sin altogether. But here in the present, the only way you defeat your flesh is by walking by the spirit. This is what Paul tells us in Galatians 4. Look it up. It's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal verse. If you're dealing with addictions and you're struggling with just... I. I don't know how to overcome this. I want to do this. I keep doing this. Paul lays it out for you in Galatians 4. Almost two, it almost seems like an oversimplification, but it's not. Walk by the Spirit, he says. This means, if this is what it takes, then our Christian walk is, is nuanced, church. It's moment by moment. And the degree of your temptation to fall back into your sin into your old way of living, into what your flesh wants, will be great. Why? Because the enemy's deceptive. He is deceptive and he will do whatever it takes to distract you from mission. So, how have you been wronged? How have you been hurt? How have you been maligned? I know every single person, every single person's been hurt or harmed or some way or another. If you haven't, raise your hand. We're going to pray for you because you're a liar. <laughs> every single person has felt harm. Some of you have been hurt so badly by somebody else. I mean, so deeply. I mean, it cuts you to the core. That you're incapable, you're, you're crippled by that to be able to care for that person. And even beyond that person, you, you're crippled to care for others the way that God has called you to care for people, to love people to the degree that he is calling you to care for them. Forgiveness is one of the, the hardest things that anybody can learn. 
But you know how you forgive? You know how you learn to forgive? You learn to forgive first by coming to terms with how much you've been forgiven. Jesus, before the crucifixion, and he was being beaten, they shoved a, a crown of thorns on his head to mock him. Say, so you say you're a king? Here's your crown. They shoved it down on his head. They stripped him of his clothes. And they came where he couldn't see him, and they beat him. And then they yelled, prophesy, who struck you? And then he's hanging on the cross and they're spitting on him. And they hung a sign over his head that says, King of the Jews, here's your king. If you're Lord, come down, take yourself off the cross, come on. And they gambled for his clothes. What did he do? I mean, if any moment in time he had a reason to just curse the people there, it was then. How did he respond? He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Do you know the degree to which you've been forgiven this morning? That in Christ, in Christ you have been forgiven even farther than you can imagine. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Forgiveness is a hard thing to learn. But Paul knew how much he'd been forgiven. He wasn't going to let it escape him. He knew that he was the worst of sinners. He said it repeatedly to the church. I'm the least of these. I'm the worst of these. The least deserving of this grace. But God has called me. And so he shares that personal encounter In verses 6 through 16, he shares the encounter he has with Christ. But he doesn't shy away from offensiveness. It's important too. He doesn't start with it, but he doesn't shy away from the offensiveness of the gospel. What does he say in verse 21? He, Jesus, said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Gentiles having the same rights as Jews was blasphemy and offensive. And at this word, they listened to him. Up into this word, it says, Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. Last point, Paul's failure. Not all attempts of sharing the gospel are successful. In fact, much of our attempts are not, at least by human understanding of success. But Paul didn't let that deter him from his mission. You know, I think one of the most striking things to me about Paul's mentality was that while he may have been dismayed at times, he surely was, he was human. Surely he felt defeat. But he did not allow defeat to rule him He did not allow the despair of his own life and the feelings that he had to drive him. And here are just three reasons why I believe not. One, he had a clear understanding of his role and God's role. I planted, 
Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God's called me to do a lot of stuff, but it's never to change people's hearts. It's never to change people's hearts. Only the Spirit of God can do that. That's God's rule. The other thing is that he knew that no amount of suffering could compare to what Christ willingly took upon himself. No amount of suffering that Paul could bear or you and I could bear will ever even touch the amount of suffering that Christ endured for us. So Paul says, take my body. I'm willing to die. Take me, put, you know, put me in chains, fine. I've been in chains before. It's not gonna stop the gospel from going forward. Whatever Christ desires to use my life for is worth it. Because Christ gave everything for me. He held nothing back. Paul likely was at Christ's crucifixion. I know there's some debate on that. I believe that he likely was. And being familiar as he was with the prophets of the Old Testament, after his conversion, I can just see him connecting the dots and what he saw that day, the crucifixion, and what he knew. And he'd hear Isaiah, the prophet's words, and he'd be like, man, I saw prophecy unfolding before my eyes. David's root, the lamb who was slain, as we just sang, that was him. I put him on the cross. And then he still decided to choose me. How could it be? How can it be? I want to read the passage from Isaiah 53. And I wish I had time to just read the whole thing, but I don't. So I'm going to read a portion of it. Excuse me. 53, starting verse 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. And carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he finishes out with this. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. As the servers come and prepare to service in communion... The last thing that I believe was how Paul was not driven to despair was that he was reminded by others of this truth. Often he was reminded. And Christ 
before the night before his death, he decided it was worth having supper with the people that were close to him. And on that night, we're told that he took the bread that was there and he broke it and he told his disciples, he said, take this and eat. This is my body, which is for you. And they didn't fully understand what that meant, right? Until later. This is my body for you. Take it and eat. Paul tells us that as often as we do that, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And then in like manner, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. This cup represents the new covenant in my blood, the blood that will cleanse you from all iniquities, the blood that will count you as righteous for all eternity. My precious blood that I'm going to spill for you tomorrow. Take it. Receive it. Don't turn away from it. And he commanded the church to do this often. Here at Crosspoint, we decided it is good for us to do this weekly. It is good that we would come and remind ourselves to remind each other. You're going to come and the person that's going to serve you is going to say, this is Christ's body broken for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you. It's a reminder. It's purposeful to be reminded by somebody else that this is what you have to bank on. Christian, this is what you have to bank on. This is the crux of the gospel. Christ's sacrifice for you. And is this gospel, it's the implications of Christ being broken for you, his blood being shed for you, the implications of that that embolden you to love and to serve and to suffer well. And so this morning, if you're here and you say, man, I I don't understand the implications of that. Man, we'd love to talk with you after. We'd love to have a conversation with you. We're so happy that you've decided to be here. Because this is important to us. This is this is other than than us to us. And, and we would just ask that you would first contemplate to say, is God speaking to me? And if this, uh, if this doesn't make sense to you today, and either because you don't believe in Christ, and that's, we, we're happy that you're here, or maybe you're here, and the Bible also warns us not to take an unworthy manner, that, that you're not harboring any secret sin this morning, but you've confessed that sin before others in God, that you understand the implications of this. And so if that is you, then come to the table and receive again Christ's sacrifice for you. This is his body broken for you. This is his bloodshed for you. Church here, I would love us to just, in, in this state of understanding the, uh, uh, John Piper said this way, there's a, there's a gravity and there's a gladness in our, in our time together. So yes, there's a gravity to understanding all this. There's a weightiness, like, wow, this is weighty. But there's a gladness that comes out of that. And so as we come to the table, there's some sobriety in that, but yet may it bring you to a state of gladness this morning. 
Because you don't come to this table because of your efforts. You come to this table because Christ has made a way for you to come. So in that rejoice, in that celebrate, would you stand to your feet and let's uh, let's take communion together. And then the band's going to lead us.